0: It's good to be with you to open up the teaching series, which Disciple and Footsteps Everywhere. We're going to be looking at Philippians in eight chunks, and I want to talk a little bit about the image, talk a little bit about the series as we introduce it, but if you have a Bible and can turn to Paul's letter to the Philippians, I'm sure that will help. Um, And what we're going to do is spend eight weeks looking at how disciples are made And ask the question, what does it look like to make a disciple? It's a very common Christian word. A disciple is a learner or a follower or an apprentice of Jesus. So how does that happen? How do you become a disciple? How do people grow in their following and their learning and their uh, becoming more like Jesus? How does that take place? And that's just about the most important thing you can ask as a Christian. What does it look like to become a disciple? And we're going to look at the letter in eight chunks and see how that's going to how that works. And this week, as you can tell, we're going to be looking at discipleship as about partnership. Well, I want to comment on the image of steps because throughout this series, we're going to use the image of like going for a walk, taking steps, going on a journey. We use that language as a church a lot anyway. And that's going to be quite predominant in the pictures and the imagery of this series. And it's, I think it's a very biblical image, the idea of thinking about the Christian life as a walk or following a path or going down a way or a route. Now you read the Old Testament and read the way the Old Testament describes the, the godly life and it will often talk about paths. Often talk about paths, following the paths of the righteous, following the paths of the wicked or whatever it might be and going to choosing certain paths. It's a very common image. And then in the New Testament, Christianity is referred to as the way. In fact, there wasn't a word Christians for quite a lot of the early period of the church's history. First few years, Christianity was not a word. And eventually was used in Acts 11. But until that point, it, it wasn't a term that people had used. And what they did call themselves was followers of the way. So who are you then? What's your belief system? Oh, I follow the way. So they used language, rather, whereas our language is often about the, what you believe, which is great. I love what we believe. I'm a preacher. Of course I do. But actually, they used to talk about the way you walk. "Said, so which way are you going? Am I going this way or this way? Jesus did it, right? That way, that way. And that's a very powerful biblical image, and it's one that it's worth us being aware of, and one of the reasons we've used this sort of imagery for the series. And I I want to make an important point about paths right at the start of the series, because our urban context, like we all live in a city, doesn't help us with paths, because paths are not pavements. Right in, in the city, well, it's actually it's a kind of silly point, but it's, it's got some important point to it as well, I think. In, a, in the city, what you do is you lay, a, you lay a path. You call it a pavement. You put down concrete from A to B, and now there's an obvious route to walk, and if you walk any other way, you get hit by a car or crash into a building. So it's obvious which way to go, and you lay it once, and then it's there. It's done. For decades, it'll still be there. Fifty years later, people still walk along the same pavement. If you live in the country and the biblical period is all written in a much more agrarian, rural society than ours, then a path is not formed by being built and then left there. A path is formed by walking on it over and over and over again. If you don't walk on it, the path disappears. So the way you make the path is by treading on it over and over and over again. You have repeated patterns or habits or destinations. And you, so you take steps. And then the path, the first time you go through it, it doesn't look like a path. And the second time it looks a little bit like one, but not really. And you keep doing it day after day after day. And over time, over a lifetime of walking, you form a path. And if you, the Christian life is a path, not a pavement. The Christian life is not something where you step into Christianity and then bang, concretes. And you go, Oh, this is really, really straightforward. You just walk along here. It's very obvious which way to go. The Christian life is a path. It's a process of again and again making decisions, making little decisions. It's not what we want sometimes in our microwave culture. What bang, I'm a Christian now. Here it is. The Christian life is all done for me. The Christian life's not like that. It's a, it's a path. It's a question of, if you like, where I live down in Eastport, You're sort of hacking through bracken the first time you want to make it. And then you sort of tread, stomp, stomp, stomp. And over time, it gradually widens and becomes a path. The Christian life is like that. And you make it by walking on it. And each time you walk on it, it becomes easier. And habits are just like that. Each time you develop a practice, each time you exercise that practice, it becomes easier to do the same thing next time, whether it's a good one or a bad one. Brains are formed that way. Our brains are wired like that, and the way our habits form are like that. And that's why you tied your shoelaces this morning without thinking about it. Because it's a habit you've developed so often, you don't even need to engage mentally with it. If suddenly somebody says, now tie your shoelaces backwards, you say, I have no idea how to tie shoelaces. Or if someone said, now turn to the person next to you and tell them, without moving your hands, how to tie a shoe, you wouldn't be able to do it. Because it's a habit that's formed so repeatedly it's almost unthinking. The Christian life is made up of daily repeated patterns of behavior and not simply one bang experience. So this series is all going to be about paths rather than a pavement that happens once. And the first of those paths, the first of those ways to live if you like, discipleship is about partnership. Let's read Philippians chapter 1. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel The latter do it out of love, knowing I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is the word of God. Discipleship is about partnership. Following Jesus involves being joined together In a shared purpose with other believers in meaningful relationships and genuine community and cooperation in the work of the gospel. And this letter and this passage in particular provides some really wonderful illustration of what partnership in the gospel looks like in practice. So think about it this way. Paul is in prison, as Faria commented, as we were singing. Paul's writing, rejoice in the Lord always. And verses like that later in the letter, from prison. We don't know exactly what prison was like in the ancient world, exactly for him, but we do know that prison in a number of other settings was not a physically pleasant experience at all. We know that he at various times was chained, that he was beaten with rods, that he was flogged or whipped, he was put in the stocks, now... now. Anybody, anybody, if you've been in the stocks. It means you went to a school fair, put your head through something, and someone threw a sponge at you. Now that's not what they did. In the, when it said Paul in Philippi in Acts 16 was put in the stocks, that means they would put one of your legs over there, the other one over there, and in an agonizing position, and you would cramp all night in agony. You were that was was not. They were, there were no sponges, right? This is about this is torture and prison sentences in the ancient world. You are on your own. You, there's no canteen that you go and get served. I mean, prison isn't nice now, but it was not a picnic in the ancient world. If you didn't have people financially supporting you, then you didn't have anything to eat, and you would starve and die. And Paul, in the midst of this kind of context, says some of the happiest things and writes arguably the happiest letter that has ever been written. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, ow, ow, again I say rejoice. It's just an extraordinary response to those circumstances. At which point you think, "What? how did he do that? Where does the joy come from in a situation like that? And the explanation he gives is, my partnership in the gospel. That's where it comes from. Look at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That's why I'm happy. And obviously, I mean, now, Paul knew how to be sorrowful, yet rejoicing. And we can talk about that later. But for now, can you say, in fact, next week, we're going to look at hardship. Because this isn't a picnic for him. But the joy that Jesus has given him through the partnership he has in the gospel with the Philippians. And specifically, in this case, through the financial gift they've given him. Has sustained him in the face of agonizing torment to the point where he can celebrate. And even in prison... Chained and isolated and alone for much of the time, Paul and the Philippians are partners in the gospel, and that makes him happy. Community does that. It does. Community does that. Working together, being together, reaching a common cause or goal together makes people much happier, whether they're Christians or not, actually. It's funny, I was writing this message about a week ago, and on the day I was writing it, uh, I saw the news came through sort of when, when I went on a news website that morning. The news came through and said, we've just appointed a minister for loneliness. And I thought, that's what people, people are aware this is a big problem. The idea of people being isolated does not help. We need to be partners with people. We need to be in communities with people. And one of the things that presumably our society has to do is to find ways of helping people connect to other people, other humans in a society that's very individualistic and isolated if we're not careful you do everything on you can do everything on your own and that's in some ways nice but it has a damaging effects on social cohesion and on human happiness so we're trying to fix it at a social level so negatively you can see if you're not a partner with with people you will struggle to find joy but positively what you can see is when you are a partner with people you find joy you're able to say rejoice because of our partnership because people common cause community help you find joy and being a partner, being a, in a meaningful relationship makes people happier. Guess what the best source of meaningful relationships and common cooperation is in the world? It's the church. Have a look at a few these, some of these headlines. I just think these are great. These are newspaper headlines summarizing, if you like, studies that are, are produced often in mostly secular. In fact, I think these are all secular publications. Right? Daily Telegraph, 2nd February 2016. Religion can make you happier, official figures suggest. Well, that's nice. It doesn't say church, it just says religion. But yeah, religion makes you happy. And you might think, well, I wonder why that is. We'll come to that. Okay. Same headline from a more lefty, left-leaning publication. In case you think this is just the Tories, you like it. Official well-being statistics show religious people are happier. Huffington Post. This is just two years ago, less than two years ago. Right? Why? Psychology Today, seventh of October, 2015. This is more of an in-house sort of psychology. Obviously, publication rather than a mass market newspaper. The data are clear. The more often you go to church, the happier you report your life to be. And you might still be going, well, why is that true? And obviously, I'm going to cheat and go, partnership in the gospel. We've just read it in scripture. But why is that true from their perspective? Well, live, live science, 6th December 2010. Why religion makes people happier, brackets, hint, not God, which is hilarious. That's like somebody goes, please don't think there is a God just because God makes you happy. And of course, the fact that it makes you happy doesn't mean there is a God. It's kind of nice, but it doesn't mean there is. So they're saying, actually, it's not God. their what they are trying to convince you of is, no, this isn't the existence of God. It's actually, as we'll see in the final one, being brought into a community. This is the, the, foot, the, the summary of the, of the data that I found. This is the, the Daily Mail on the 25th of December, 2014. Religious people much happier and have more life satisfaction than others, according to a new study. Why? According to the study, this connection between religion and happiness stems from social support within the religious communities. Now, obviously, I would say the existence of God and the truth of the gospel is a massive reason why we're full of joy, but... From a purely secular point of view, assuming that Jesus is still dead, which he isn't, and assuming there is no God, and there is, even then you're still forced to confront the reality that religion and church makes people happy. And the reason you give is because being in a community like this brings people joy, because partnering in the gospel makes people happy. It might not not be the first thing you want to do. Some of us got up this morning, and the first thing we wanted to do was to turn the alarm off, or to tell the children to be quiet, or whatever it was. But even so, our long-term fruitfulness and joy is best served by being partners in the gospel. And to some degree, even the secular studies would show that to be true. Despite being in prison, Paul can say, I rejoice because of our partnership. And in some ways, that's what's being admitted in all of these kinds of studies, which repeatedly get published as if it's news. And that's why we join the church. And that's why we serve together and participate in groups because we know that our joy in Christ is going to be increased and encouraged and fanned into flame by partnership with other believers. And therefore, it's a good thing for us to do. There's a joy that comes from partnership which you'd miss if you were on your own. So, a, few, a couple of months back, my son for his birthday, we often do a bonfire thing. His November birthday, so we do a, a bonfire thing, make a big bonfire in the garden, and uh, you know, sort of you know everything's incredibly hot and setting everything on fire, then you go inside and you leave the fire to burn itself out. And what happens, of course, with bonfires is, for various reasons, the kids have been toasting marshmallows or whatever, and so there's bits of stick that were, being, that were very hot that have been removed from the fire and are now scattered about the garden. You have to go and clear them up. But those sticks, when you come back the next morning, are obviously all stone cold. They're completely normal. But you go over to the, where the bonfire was and all of the sticks that are still where they were, and they are still not only hot... They are so hot that if you drop a new stick onto the bonfire, and a little bit of air goes through the bonfire, the whole thing catches fire again, and off you go. And my father-in-law was doing something with our shed at the time, throwing away some fencing. That fire stayed hot for a week. Because every day he'd come in, just drop on new bits, off it went. Because when you are united together with other people who are also hot like you, they keep you hot and you keep them hot. And when you're in isolation on your own over here in the garden floor, you just go cold like everybody else. Partnership keeps us burning. It keeps us hotter for God. It keeps us joyful. Partnership in the gospel for Paul was a source of great joy. So that's a good reason why partnership in the gospel is a vital part of discipleship. But what we then need to look at is, well, what does that look like in practice? Okay, fine. I get the principle, being a partner in the gospel is good for the Christian and it increases our joy. So what does that involve doing? And so let's walk through the passage just a bit at a time. Looking at one or two verses at a time and we'll see. There's I mean eight things in this text, just reading through it in order. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Partnership in the gospel involves a church. That's kind of really obvious, you would say. Well, of course it does. What how else are people, the people of God, going to come together and partner in the gospel? But it involves a church. You can see Paul writing to a specific place with a specific community of people who know we are the saints in Philippi. And he also chucks in, we're together with the overseers, which in our church we would generally call the elders. And some churches would call them overseers and some would call them bishops, depending on your model. But that's the, that's the office and the deacons. So there are two groups of church government offices along with the saints. So Paul is writing to a church. He's not just writing to random people in their homes scattered around who never meets. He's writing to a community. He's writing to a church. In our individualistic age, we can find that actually quite hard sometimes, that God's intention is for a people together and not primarily for isolated individuals. A lot of us want God to deal with isolated individuals. And we want to be, the best, just, it's just me and Jesus. And if I come and you and you and Jesus, we might enjoy meeting together, but as far as we do, that's great. But if I don't, kind of you kind of... Smell a bit, or I don't really like you, or we don't get on, or we don't like the same things. Then we'll go back to being isolated individuals. The Word of God never thinks about the people of God that way. Thinks about them as a community gathered together, identifiable, where people say, "This is my family." I saw this. um, Some of you might have seen it before. saw this billboard a couple of years back, uh, which is a source of some concern for me. Go to church at home Sundays, ten a.m. live. Cup of tea in the corner of the screen. Just to say, clearly, if you are on the mission field and you are 800 miles from the nearest Christian, of course it's better to be on, in an online setting like this than it is to not have any Christian input. There are people who listen to our sermons as a church for exactly that reason. I have no problem with that. I have a big problem with the idea of saying, you, can, you don't need to go and be with people. You can just sit in your sitting room with a cup of tea and watch church and do it that way. Think, so a friend of mine just tweeted this with the words above, not a thing. It's not a thing. You can't, in that sense, you can't do church in isolation. That's not what the word means. It's intended to be a community of people together, being one. And with all their problems and all of their challenges, and all of us have fallen and in our various ways dealing with our issues. And as we do, we do it together as a church. It is not good for man to be alone. So, Paul writes to the saints, the overseers, and the deacons. It's a church. Verse 3. I thank my God... In all my remembrance of you. So being a partnership in the gospel involves thanksgiving. It involves being thankful. And that's not something you have to do. That's something you love to do, I find. I walk in here, and i probably get here earlier than most of you on a Sunday because I arrive and sort of prepare the message upstairs and so on. I walk in and I can hear the band coming through the wall. And then I walk downstairs and I see people smiling and serving and singing and it does my soul so much good. And I am honestly, like this isn't just a phrase, I am thankful for you. Like, I really am. I often, often will say to God, thank you for the privilege of being with these people. A lot of you, I don't, haven't, don't know your names, and we have never had a conversation, but I am thankful for you. It is good to be together. And actually, when I remember King's Church London, I am thankful. Just think What a place. What an amazing community to be in. Just by being here, doing what you're doing now, you do me good, and I trust that we do each other good. We actually grow together simply by being in the same space and expressing our love for Jesus together. Because I see people who are going through all manner of things. The ones of you that I know, I'm aware of some of the challenges and heartaches and difficulties in your circumstances, that we then come together and say, do you know what, in spite of those things, I'm going to bless the Lord." Jesus still loves me. God is still good. He's in power ruling and he's going to make all things well one day and for now, I don't understand why this is happening but I'm going to praise him anyway. That does me so much good and I'm thankful when I remember you and that's what Paul is saying to them. And actually, partnership in the gospel involves thanksgiving. Verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now we've seen already, partnership involves joy. But here we also see partnership involves prayer. Right, Always for you all, making my prayer with joy. A few weeks ago, Rich and I were, as, as a, we just as a family, it, a very, it had been a difficult, difficult term. And we were just in really, you know when you run out of steam and then feel like, I am, I am up against it here. I don't, I'm, we are running out of resources and we really need a breakthrough. In a couple of situations in our family life, and so what we, what we did was, eventually, I suppose, I once heard a preacher say, you know, what you eventually learn is, if all else fails, ask God. Which is a terrifying indictment, but it's true. Sometimes you just go, nothing else seems to be working, we'd better pray. And what happened? We, we asked our partners in the gospel. We don't call them that, we call them friends, or we use WhatsApp or something. But we get the word out to two different groups of people saying, please pray for us, explain the situation, please ask God on our behalf. Now, in that particular case, from that day, it totally changed and has been changed ever since. That doesn't always happen, but in our context, that time, it did. And I just thought, yeah, we are partners in the gospel because we are those who pray for one another. We are those who, whether you go up and stand next to someone and lay a hand on them and ask for God to bless them in person, as I've already seen some people doing this morning, or whether we are those who pray, and even though we don't know who they are, we just pray for those people in that part of the room that we are, those people in the church who have young children, those retired people in the church, and we pray for them, we are partners in the gospel because we pray. And we're going to come back to that in a few verses' time. You'll see Paul can't stop himself, and he will do it in just a few verses' time. And obviously, as we've already seen, partnership in the gospel involves joy. Verse 6 I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Partnership involves hope, is what I would call that. The idea that because God has worked grace in your life, I can be certain of the hope that he is going to preserve you to the end. I can know that. This is how partnership works, you see. We, we see the evidence of grace in each other. I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you. So I look at your life and I say, God started something in you. There's no way you or I would have come to faith if God hadn't done something. I'd still be dead in my trespasses. So God's done something. Oh, great. Okay. There, he's begun a good work. But I know that God is the kind of God who, having begun a work, never lets it be not unfinished. God doesn't sort of start drawing to think, oh, you know, that's a bit rubbish. I don't know what to do with that canvas. I'll leave it over there. No, he always works it into something that he's got in the end in mind. And he begins, having begun a work, he will always complete it. And because I know that about God, I can look at your life and you can look at mine and say, well, you may be going through a lot, but I know that if God has begun something, he will finish it. I know that because I know God. A friend of mine was going through a really difficult season a few years back. He'd lost his father and was really doubting and having a tough, like it was a dark place for him. And he, uh, it was the first time I think he'd experienced that sense of, I just don't know if I believe. I don't know if I'm going to make it. And we had a lot of conversations over a year, a year and a half, just trying to help him and standing with him and just comforting him in part and sometimes more at a more intellectual level wrestling through some of those doubts with him. And I couldn't reassure him that he was going to feel fine. And I couldn't reassure him that he was going to bounce right back. He's a very sort of upbeat character normally and was really down. But I could reassure him of this. I am sure of this, mate. I am sure that the God who began a good work will complete it. I don't know what your circumstances... I don't know how long you will find this to be your experience. I'll be here for you and I'll help in any way I can. But I don't know what that will be like for you. But I do know that the God who has begun will complete because partnership involves hope. And actually, I could encourage him and there'll be seasons and have been when he's needed to encourage me and many others have too. Partnership involves hope. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Partnership involves sharing in grace. In Paul's specific situation, the grace the Philippians had was to give him money, and the grace he had was to persevere in gospel joy even though he was in jail. I think giving him money was probably easier. But he's saying, we've both become sharers of grace. The gift of God has come to me to do this. The gift of God has come to you to do that. And to be a believer, to be a partner, is to be a co-sharer of grace. So as you look around this room, you'll see people who have been given the grace of God to do things you could never do. I look at many of you and go, how on earth do you do that? I don't have the gift to do that. And we always do that, don't we? But that's because we are sharers of grace. And the grace manifests itself differently to different people and even in different seasons. But we are sharers of grace. And that, that, that's the joy of partnership is that I don't have the grace to do any, everything and neither are you. But together, we do. That's partnership in the gospel. Verse 8, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. What a beautiful phrase. I feel the same kind of affection for you that Jesus does. What a thing to say to somebody. One of the things that I, I, I feel is the affection Affection—the if you like the warm, playful, hair ruffling, high-fiving affection that Jesus feels for you. You know, sometimes the the love of God is something we say so often it can lose its edge. If we sometimes you need to give it another word. God is affectionate towards you. God feels the kind of affection. I am a friend of God. Whoa! I am. A, I love that song because I just—I'm a friend. God is affectionate to me. God delights. He is passionate. He is excited to see me. And Paul saying, I catch some of that when I think of you. I look at you and I think, Jesus loves that guy. He's so affectionate towards that sister. I'm going to join in that affection and share it towards them. And that's what partners do. And that's why, by the way, from the beginning of the church, the church has always greeted each other as relatives rather than as colleagues. That's why those otherwise puzzling lines in the end of the letters greet one another with a kiss or with a holy kiss. I'm not saying in our culture that might be hugs, by the way, not kisses. So I'm not saying you must therefore go up and, and by the way, this, you know, old men, young women, don't just go up and kiss. You know, what I, mean? I just want to be heard, not, not heard to be saying something I'm not. But at the same time, the point is that you are brothers and sisters, and therefore you relate as a family, as affectionate ones, one towards the other. Verse 9, and it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what's excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I said partnership involves prayer. This is what he prays. And if it's all right, I'm just going to ask you to pray it with me for one another. Okay, it'll appear up on the screen. This is just a a good... Prayers that Paul writes are often good ones. In fact, they're all good ones. Right, so can we just pray this together for the other people in this church? And I just... This is the kind of thing Paul's got on his heart, okay? Father we pray for our brothers and sisters in the church. We pray that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that they may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God Amen. It's a good prayer, and it's good to go to Paul's prayers and see how does he do it. And then finally, verse twelve. I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel because it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard. My imprisonments for Christ. Notice partnership involves the advance, the progress of the gospel. Paul's partners here are not the Philippians, actually. They're the local believers in wherever, Ephesus perhaps, that are emboldened by his imprisonment. People have looked at Paul and thought, if you can go through that, I can do this. I find that when I've met Iranian brothers and sisters. If you can go through that for the gospel, I can be a bit more bold as well. And therefore, the gospel advances because of our partnership together. Partnership emboldens Christians and advances the gospel. So discipleship is about partnership. It's about doing stuff together. It's about finding joy in being joined to other believers in meaningful relationships and genuine community and cooperation in the work of the gospel. And I said at the start that Scripture pictures Christianity as a path and says if you really want to make paths for your feet, what you want to do is go steadily on the same path every day. Do you know what's even better than doing that? It's going steadily on the same path every day together. That's how you make safe paths for your feet. That's how you follow Jesus. That we don't just need pavements. We don't even just need paths. We need partnership. And it's our partnership with God that provides the foundation for all of this. The one who began a good work in us and will continue it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus and for the joy of being saved and not only being saved from our sins, and reconciled to you, but actually being saved from our divisions and isolation and reconciled to one another. Lord, we thank you for making us partners. We thank you for making us a community that for all our faults and for all the ways that we annoy each other sometimes, we remain a family that you are committed to and have bound together. We are thankful for the privilege and we ask that you'd help us to live it out as we go through this series, whether it be group life, Sunday life, individual family life, you would help us live as partners in the gospel with one another and with you and your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen.